I was a uh, practicing clinician working in a home health agency model. I wasn't allowed to dose my patients as per best practice guidelines. So I said, there's gotta be a way to do this better. My, my grandmother, uh, my grandfather, I started seeing them going in and out of long-term care. It started personal seeing the sick side of 80, and now it's been exciting to be part of Fox. Light bulb moment, like that's a complete game changer. You can see what we can do as a practice and as treating clinicians to really make 80, 85 look so much different than it did back that long ago. And boil it down into one say, it's quite simply this, it's be stronger, live better longer. Welcome to Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast, the podcast dedicated to clinicians who work with older adults. My name is Jim Shear, and today my co-host is Fox speech language pathologist, Sherilyn Morse. Sherilyn, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Jim. So today we are going to chat about patient-centered therapy. Do you mind if I give a stab at this first and you tell me how close or how far away I am? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Because I I mean, I could have researched and I I, I did do my homework, but for this, I just kind of wanted to throw a dart at the wall and see how close I was at the target. So to me, when you talk about patient-centered therapy, you're assessing that patient, you're diving into the details, and then you are coming up with a custom approach for that individual patient. How close am I? You're very, very close. Ooh, I'm warm, Um, (laughs) I'm warm. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think that there's one definition for patient-centered therapy. I did try to draft my own, but patient-centered therapy is taking the goals of the patient and putting it at the forefront of the eval, the treatment, and the discharge, which sounds simple enough, right? Who else is it going to be about besides the patient? It just gets more complicated, I guess, sometimes when we get into the middle of things. So that's why I thought it'd be a really good topic to talk about. Should we talk about the complicated part? The complicated sure. middle part? Why Why is the middle part so complicated? And, <laughs> and what is the middle part? Well, sometimes we see a problem that we want to fix as clinicians, uh, whether you're an occupational therapist, physical therapist, speech. Uh, we see the problem and it's so clear, like, oh, this is what they need help on. And sometimes there's a total mismatch with what the patient themselves wants to work on. So that's where it can kind of get a little bit difficult. Um, And then you throw in, you know, caregiver education, uh, talking to staff in the buildings uh, or anybody interacting with the patient, nurses, uh, people like that. And it can get a little bit muddled. That's where it kind of gets a little bit difficult, but also fun because that's where we kind of get to put our own spin on things and see how we can relate to the patient and figure out, okay, this is what we're going to work on because this is what matters to you. You're forced to be creative. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So yeah, here's a question I had. So a patient can decline your recommendation, right? They can. They can. It's a wild concept. (laughs) So you come Um, in, you're like, hey, I'm a trained clinician. I think we should do this. And they can flat out say no to you? Yeah, they can. Um, And it happens all the time, I think. So a lot of times, like the kind of the old way of thinking, right, was that you would give a recommendation, the patient would say not not going to happen in whatever way they phrased it. And you would write, okay, patient is non-compliant. And then that would kind of stick in their medical record forever and carry on with them wherever they went. So now you're talking about patients who are coming in with like a bad rap as like a non-compliant patient 
when really maybe there was just a misunderstanding of what the patient's goals were and what the, the clinician's goals were. So the way that I approach it and the, the kind of the new way of thinking, I guess, is that we're talking about patients declining recommendations, but doesn't necessarily have to have this negative feeling to it. Right. It's just like they, they don't were, have to be wearing were, the scarlet letter. Right. Right. You gave them education. You talked about the benefits of your approach, uh, you know, all the other sides and, and they chose what was best for them, which is really empowering. And we don't want to, we don't want to say it's the wrong choice. Maybe, maybe for safety reasons or for, what we view, oh, this would improve their quality of life so much. Maybe, maybe in that regard, it would be the best choice, but our best choice is going to be different than the patient's best choice sometimes. Uh, and sometimes we just have to live with that, which it's so hard. No, I know. I was thinking about that today. So what if you go into a situation, you give a patient a recommendation in your head, you're thinking you need to do this hundred percent. You need to do this and they decline. How do you pivot? So it really depends on the situation. Obviously, with speech pathology, you're working a lot with diet recommendations, swallow safety strategies, things like that. One thing that I do, right, I might give recommendations for them to get a modified barium swallow study or an endoscopy to kind of figure out what's going on. Or maybe they've had that study done already. Maybe they found out that, you know, they're aspirating liquids sometimes. And maybe the study recommended thickened liquids. Now, this patient might have had no history of pneumonia before, and they might feel like, okay, I'm I'm not changing to the thickened liquid. I, I want to have my regular coffee. I want to eat my ice cream. As a clinician, I could write, patient is non-compliant to my diet recommendations uh, and, and discharge them. But that's not really helping anybody. No. Uh, <laughs> so kind of the way that I approach it is I usually give, you know, I'll, I'll explain like, Hey, according to the study, you're safer when you eat or drink this, um, you know, like how realistic is that for you? Are you, are you actually going to follow that? <laughs> and, and sometimes people say like, oh, I can do this, but I'm still going to have my ice cream. So, you know, that, then it comes into, you know, there's different factors that can contribute to an aspiration pneumonia you know, it's, is, is their mouth clean? Have they, you know, what kind of, what's their health status? Uh, are they actually aspirating if they're aspirating and, but their health status is pretty good and they brush their teeth really well. Maybe I'm saying like, Hey, listen, I don't recommend you do this because, you know, according to the study, it could put you at an increased risk of aspiration, but if you are going to eat your ice cream, brush your teeth before and after, right? And that other clinicians may look at that and say like, oh, wow, that's like a lawsuit waiting to happen. But I really don't think so, right? You just, you document the discussion between you and the patient. And I, I don't think that it needs to be a big deal. And I think a lot of clinicians feel that way too, but I kind of want to help empower other clinicians that it's not so black and white, right? There's a whole range of people and their decisions. and. Uh, I don't know if anyone told me that I couldn't have ice cream again, I'm pretty sure I'd be non-compliant too. So. <laughs> it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act. Yeah. Um, and there's no right answer. And sometimes it's really scary and it's a little bit nerve wracking. And I, you know, it might even be wild for you to tell like a caregiver or something that this person has a right to make their own choice. Right. Because they're like, well, they could choke. So you're really giving good education around what the person's goals are 
what we can do to help. And then sometimes, whether it's swallowing, cognition, language, sometimes the patients just don't want our help or they're not ready for it. And and that's okay too. I, you know what? I'm in the same boat. Like, I feel like life is almost playing the numbers. Like, I know that I could eat vegetables and fruits all the time and exercise for an hour a day. It doesn't always happen. So I, I play the numbers. I'm like, you know what? I might exercise three days this week. And I might have ice cream and pizza for a couple of the other days. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's all it's all balance, right? It's about obviously like we want our patients to be safe. And I I would recommend safety, but if the patient makes it clear that really their goals are more quality of life, okay, then how about we do quality of life with some safety? <laughs> So that you're really, you know, we're trying to keep your risk low for developing complications from the diet that you're choosing to have. So not all of my patients follow my diets. It doesn't mean I discharge them. I just work with kind of what what they're throwing at me. Sometimes I get a little bit more nervous than other times. (laughs) So sometimes I'm just really honest with patients too, right? If they're really not following a a diet or something that recommended, I might recommend, listen, this puts you at high risk. Your caregiver should take a a Heimlich course so that they know what to do in case you start choking. Sometimes that's really scary for the caregiver to hear, but I think it's really important to be honest and upfront and we can still work on their goals, but they should be prepared for, you know, the good outcomes and the bad outcomes. Right. If they're, if they're going to choose uh, to eat or to drink whatever they want, but it doesn't mean they're doing anything bad. I, I like that you're building up a health literacy with your patients. Right. Right. Some of this is, it's very overwhelming. I mean, we're right. We went to graduate school and learned about all these different things, describing it to a patient in like a 30 minute session or something. That's a lot. So it takes a long time. And this isn't necessarily the first information that we're giving them, right? Like we're getting to know them. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is sometimes multiple weeks of calling their loved ones, calling their, uh, talking to their nurses, you know, kind of getting everybody on board. We're not necessarily just bringing it up once and closing the book. (laughs) So Sherilyn, tell me about being a therapy detective. Um, So that's one of my favorite parts of being a therapist (laughs) in the home. (laughs) So this was not something I used to work in a skilled nursing facility and I I couldn't really be a therapy detective as much. I heard people, you know, discuss like, oh, this patient is having this difficulties, but now I get to be in their house. So that's kind of a fun thing that we can do where, you know, you're, you're walking into their house, you're talking to them. A lot of times people are not aware of the difficulties that they're having. There's, you know, sometimes there's deficits in that self-awareness of, of your challenges. So being a therapy detective kind of is a delicate balancing act between building rapport with the patient Mm -hmm. during an evaluation. Each patient is different too. It's not like, Oh, Uh like I've mastered it. Like I can treat any patient now. No, everyone's a little bit different. Yeah. Some people need you to be like utter kindness, just like overwhelming, right? Tons of compliments, like beautiful windows. I don't know. Like just and then other patients are like, okay, why are you here? <laughs> so, so you, let's do you it. Have to Come adjust. on. Let's do it. Let's, let's get it over it. with. Yeah. <laughs> so I usually try to observe and like, I don't call it nosy, but I definitely am asking questions that I'm trying to get specific answers. Right. So I'll say like, are you having any memory difficulties? And a lot of times patients are like, nope, my memory's perfect. And I'm like, great, great. That's awesome to hear. 
And I'll say like, so who liked that? You know, like who does the grocery shopping? Who, who helps you with the bills? Does anyone help you with the bills? Who does your medication? And then a lot of times they hear like, oh, well, my daughter does that. Or, oh, my son takes care of those things. So that's kind of where like the, oh, why is that? <laughs> and sometimes they don't really know. And sometimes they're just like, oh, it was too overwhelming for me. Right. And sometimes we know if tasks are getting overwhelming, that's because the cognitive load is increasing. So sometimes it's, it's a delicate conversation where then if you go in one way, you can kind of navigate through and sometimes figure out some difficulties that they actually notice that they're having. And you can use that to sell the therapy that might help them. I wanted to talk about the grief cycle. Can you explain that? Because there's a graph and obviously we're talking on a podcast now. You can't see it. Think of a hill. The hill goes down and then the hill goes back up. It goes denial, anger, bottom of the hill is bargaining, then going up the hill, depression, and then at the top of the hill, at the end of this, is acceptance. So yeah. I was wondering, and, and once again, it's it's tough to visualize when you're listening to a podcast, but anger and depression are either going downhill or going uphill. Why are they at that point... <laughs> on the diagram. You know, I'm looking at the diagram that you're talking about. Um, and this is the Cooper Ross grief cycle that we're discussing. And this is the one that we learned about when I was in graduate school. And I guess I'm seeing denial. And once you're going down the way that it lays it out, right. It's mm -hmm. that after anger, then you're bargaining. And then after you finish the bargaining stage, then you get into depression and it's really not linear, right? And I even, I double checked this. I was like, is this meant to be linear though? Because you might meet a patient and they're like, oh yeah, I have Parkinson's. Like it is what it is, right? So maybe that sounds like acceptance. And then the next day they could be so angry. Like nobody can hear me and I can't swallow anymore, right? And that seems, that seems like anger, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then you might be thrown into the bargaining in the same session, you know, like, is there anything I can do to make the swallowing difficulties go away? Sometimes at the end of the session, you've got some denial. Like, I think, you know what? I think I'm fine. We're not going to worry about it, right? So <laughs> like clinicians sometimes get thrown for a loop with people who are all over the grief cycle, and usually people, you know, a set uh, from what I've seen, you know, there's a session where people are sometimes really angry in other sessions where, you know, they're kind of bargaining. Um, it's not necessarily all over the place with one, one session, but a person's life is not necessarily going through this cycle in order. I try to respect where the person might be in the cycle. So there's been times where like, I've gone to see a patient and they're like, I really can't do it today. Like, it's just not, I can't do it. And I'm overwhelmed. And like, we've all had those days. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had days where like, there's no way that I'm doing that thing that I said I was going to do. And it stinks and I feel bad, but I just, I can't do it or I will just, I'll lose it. Right. So I feel like I try to give the same respect to my patients. Right. Obviously patients have a right to decline therapy and treatment for that day. And it can be so frustrating, especially when you show up to their house and they're like, not today. Yeah. But thinking about like where they are in the grief cycle and if that might be impacting how they're feeling about therapy. And then maybe you spend a session kind of counseling on that. You use the grief cycle just to kind of gauge where a patient might be at. I don't necessarily pinpoint them according to this, but I always have the grief cycle in the back of my mind. Okay. 
because it helps guide me through difficult circumstances. So if a caregiver is not, you know, if they're like, oh, they don't have that. They're actually, their memory's perfect, right? Maybe they're in denial, right? So then maybe I have to show them like, actually they're having these difficulties and they're aware of these difficulties. You know, you go through the grief cycle when someone passes, right? But you also could go to the, go through the grief cycle when you get news about a new diagnosis that you didn't know you had. And some people don't really care about certain diagnoses. And some people, a small diagnosis could be really, really stressful. So I tried to just talk to patients, you know, how are you feeling about this? Like, how's your communication today? Like, how is it affecting you? How is it affecting you, you know, talking to your friends and things like that. And usually that's how it sort of unravels and you can get more information. But so much of what I do is counseling within my scope. Sherilyn, last question before we go to break. Maybe this is a stupid question, but shouldn't all therapy be patient-centered? I don't think it's a stupid question. I also don't believe in stupid questions. Thank but, you. Um, <laughs> yes, it it should be patient-centered. Um, I think it gets a little bit difficult, right, when the patient wants one thing and their family or or nursing in a building, you know, like they need them to see that, you know, that, well, you have to be safe, right? We, there's risks that you're not understanding or, well, they just don't get what might happen. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's really, really difficult because there's so many components or people able to make their own decisions still. But I do think that the patient should have a say in the process and keeping it focused on what they want, what they need, um, and kind of what their personal goals are, I think, can just really help when things get muddled. All right, so let's take a break. And when we come back on Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast, I'm going to give Sherilyn Morse, and you don't even know this yet, I'm going to give you the acronym CHALLENGE. Just a reminder to everyone that Fox Rehabilitation is celebrating Better Hearing and Speech Month. And as part of the celebration, every week for the rest of the month, we are giving out a $100 gift card to a deserving Fox speech language pathologist. And not only are we giving them a $100 gift card, but we are recording the reactions. Because I don't know about you, but I think it's fun when you see someone's reaction after finding out that they just won a $100 gift card. So if you would like to see these videos, if you would like to be part of the celebration, make sure to follow Fox Rehabilitation on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and TikTok. And besides these videos, we have a whole bunch of other cool content going on with our clinicians and our patients. So I think if you go to one of our social media channels and you take a quick glance, you get a really good feel of what is happening here with Fox Rehabilitation. So once again, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. We are back on Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast. I am chatting with Fox speech-language pathologist Sherilyn Morse, the Sherlock Holmes of SLP. (laughs) So, Sherilyn, I kind of sprung this on you, but uh, you can decline. Would you be interested in taking the acronym challenge? 
Definitely. <laughs> okay. Because when I started with Fox, I was thrown a gazillion acronyms. And I was like, what? Like, you're saying what? Like, what? And people were just speaking like it's this own language. So I'm going to throw some acronyms your way. Maybe they're okay. so easy. You're like, yeah, that's nothing. Or maybe you don't know it. Maybe, okay, maybe I shame you. I shame you on the Live Better Longer <laughs> podcast. All right. You ready? I'm ready. First one. N-S-O-M-E. N-S-O-M-E. There's a dash in this acronym. I, I, uh, I, I pulled this off a website, so it's not like I know it. The SLP in me thinks the OME stands for oral motor examination, um, but I'm going to assume that that's not correct. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You know what? I might have messed this up because my acronym is different. Yeah, it's oral motor treatments. Ooh, is it N-S-O-M-T? Okay. I'm so, not sure. So you I got say- you got oral, oral motor treatments is correct. Oh, good. Okay. And the NS, the NS National would be... National standards? No. Non, non-speech. Non-speech oral motor treatments. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, one more. <laughs> do you do you hate that you're taking the acronym challenge? No, I, I love this okay. type of stuff. <laughs> All right, next one. AJSLP. AJSLP. I feel like that's a website uh, that has like research for speech pathologists. You're warm. You're warm. <laughs> now you the, know. You know. You know the SLP. Yeah, yeah. Association for uh, judicial. <laughs> I don't know what that J could be. American Journal of Speech Language oh. Pathology. I feel like I've definitely seen articles with that written on the top of it. <laughs> All right. You know, that makes me feel a little bit better, though. <laughs> good. good. To see, I'm, to see. I'm recognizing some of these some of these acronyms. So, Sherilyn, before you go, I'm just curious. And I ask this question a lot. What got you interested in speech language pathology? Yeah. So um, I really wanted to be an actor growing up. That was all I could think about. And did you have a favorite actor? Um, I don't know if I had a favorite. I'm like really into movies and I've been acting my whole life. I still act. And my mom suggested speech pathology to me because she didn't want me to be a struggling actor. And at first (laughs) I was like, no way. I just want to be an actor. And then I guess I like Googled it. And I I was like, Oh, this isn't so bad. Actually, this kind of (laughs) sounds like I might be interested in this. And I kind of had this existential crisis where I was like, I can't be a speech pathologist. I have to be an actor. I'll do both, (laughs) which I kind of do because I do still act on the side when I can. But when I started looking into it, I realized that it really fit with what I was interested in. And it kind of molded, you know, things that were pivotal in my life. Like my grandpa had Alzheimer's, for example. And, you know, eventually he forgot his family and things like that. But those are really difficult as a kid, I think. And then realizing that I could work with people who had dementia, right. I could help them to communicate with their family. Like that's been super empowering, I think for me. So I definitely think I found the right profession. I have no regrets. (laughs) And speaking of acting, 
what kind of stuff do you do? Um, I've done like commercials. I've done uh, some television stuff, uh, plays. Would we really, have seen these commercials? <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, when, well, one of them was for like a soccer industrial, but that one it's not re- hasn't been released to the public. But I love doing plays, community theater. What was, really latest, can, what was your latest play? Latest play. I did a monologue show a couple of years ago. I did some Zoom readings during COVID. And I got to be Jill in Butterflies Are Free. That was one of my favorites. Well, this is this is good to know. I'm glad you have that skill. <laughs> I'm going to tap you at some point to do some acting. I'm, I'm always down. <laughs> well, Sherilyn, thank you for doing this. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. So for Sherilyn Morse, my name is Jim Shear, and we will see Yins later. <laughs>